Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 12th, 2022. On this week's show, Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim will join us to talk about his longtime colleague and our friend Grant Wall, who died suddenly over the weekend while covering the World Cup in Qatar. We'll also be joined by The Atlantic's Franklin Four for a conversation about Morocco's thrilling run to the World Cup semifinals. And finally, we'll discuss Brittany Griner's long-awaited return to the United States after a prisoner swap with Russia. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us from California is Joel Anderson, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and 6. Hey, Joel. Hey, Jeff. We're all obviously in shock about Grant's death, and we're going to play a long conversation with John Wertheim coming up in a second. But I think we had just all wanted to um, pause before uh, we start the show just to say you know, how deeply we've been affected by this news. I mean, Stefan, you and I were just on a Zoom with Grant a week ago. We recorded that on Sunday after the U.S.-Netherlands game. And, um, you know, you guys heard 20 minutes of that, our conversation about the game. But we also spent some time with Grant on that Zoom, Stefan, just talking about, you know, how he was doing life. And just to think that he's gone now, it's just unfathomable. It is unfathomable, I as I'll mentioned in our conversation with John, I knew Grant for 25 years. Um, uh, he was a colleague. We weren't close personal friends, but we interacted a ton at World Cups, men's and women's on this show. He must have been a guest on Hang Up and Listen you know, 20, 30 times over the years, Josh. A lot of people sent really, listeners sent a lot of really nice notes and comments over the weekend um, saying how much they enjoyed hearing Grant and how much they learned about soccer from hearing Grant and how they weren't fans of the sport except for Grant and listening to him on Hang Up and Listen. Um, it's just a unspeakable tragedy, and our, our hearts are obviously extremely heavy, and, and our condolences go out to Grant's family, his wife, Celine Gounder, um, his brother, and the rest of his family. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I didn't know Grant as well as you. You all guys knew him, um, but he to me, he was a legend, uh, almost sort of a celebrity. I've been reading Grant Wall since I was in college, and 
just the idea that we had access to him in this way was like a big thrill for me. And I know a lot of people sometimes comment or talk about, you know, Joel's not a huge soccer fan or whatever, but I didn't grow up with soccer. You know, like that's just not, America is a different place. I grew up in a different neighborhood, a different culture, a different neighborhood, whatever. But his enthusiasm and his willingness to take people into the game and to talk about the culture and the personalities and everything else, like he's, I mean, at least as far as I'm concerned, you know, probably the most important soccer writer of my lifetime um, and that we had access to him and that he was just so giving of his time and so generous and just a cool guy. Like even in the moments when we're not recording, um, just to have those moments with him, man. Um, I mean, I, I can't believe that they're over, but I'm glad that we really had them. And that this, you know, this, this show is part of his archive uh, in a way. So I'm really proud of that. And, uh, but yeah, you know, to your point, Stefan, it's just, you know, we're all up there too, man. Just, you know, it just goes by so quickly and uh, it's just, just really sad. But I'm also a big believer that people get the eulogies they deserve and seeing all the people come out and talk about him in the ways that they did over the weekend was just really um, uplifting uh, in, in a way, uh, in a really grim time. Thanks both of you guys for those um, great words. And I think before we start the show, um, we should hear Grant's voice. So we're going to just put in a clip here um, from one of his recent appearances uh, on our show that kind of shows Grant's personality, his clarity of vision, and we'll enjoy listening to him and wish we were able to talk to him again this week. You know, I personally, as a journalist, wanted to come here earlier in the year and do the reporting on migrant workers before I came in November and December, because I know what covering World Cups is like, because uh, it, there's a ton of soccer. There's four games a day for the first half of the tournament, and I'm going to be spending a ton of time covering soccer. So I wanted to cover the other important things before the tournament started. And we'll see if any event incidents happen during the tournament, protests from players or anything like that. In our Slate Plus segment this week, we are going to talk about soccer and the news that came out on Sunday about Gio Reyna, the young American star who apparently almost got sent home from the World Cup because of his lack of effort in practice. Uh, to hear that segment, you need to be a Slate Plus Remember, you get extra segments on the show and other Slate shows, you get ad-free podcasts, and you get to support our program, which we very much appreciate. Uh, Slate.com slash Hangup Plus uh, to join. Slate.com slash Hangup Plus. One month ago on a Sunday morning, I texted Grant Wall asking if he could join us on the podcast the next day to preview the Men's World Cup. The only catch? It looked from his Twitter feed that he'd be en route to Qatar. Minutes later, though, Grant wrote back, Hey, would 11.15 a.m. work? He was at the airport in Toronto, his first stop from Newark, and then on to Cairo, and finally to Doha. A few hours after arriving at his rental house, after a 24-hour journey, Grant's familiar bald head popped up on Zoom, and he delivered 20 minutes of thoughtful commentary about Qatar, human rights, and the U.S. national team. As we've read and heard in so many testimonials since he collapsed in the press box during the Argentina-Netherlands quarterfinal and died on Saturday at age 49, Grant was always there for others in the media. Whenever I asked him for a contact, for a player, or another reporter, he happily passed it along. He was a guest on this show many times. 
some of our listeners commented over the weekend that they got to know Grant through his appearances here. Grant declined only when he knew he'd be on a plane. And when he did decline, he always suggested another soccer journalist, usually someone younger and less well-known, whom he wanted to support. That was Grant the colleague. Grant the reporter, here's how Sports Illustrated executive editor John Wertheim described in a remembrance his office mate at the magazine in the late 90s. The greatest soccer writer of our generation, covering the world's biggest sport, more like a foreign correspondent than a beat writer. John Wertheim is here now. John, thanks for coming on to pay tribute to our friend. Thanks, guys. I just, I, I can't believe we're doing this, but um, thanks for having me. John, there were two things that stood out to me journalistically about Grant. One was his approach to a beat that over a quarter century, he simply dominated. All of it was endlessly interesting to him. The teams, the players, the tactics, the politics, the fans, the culture. But he was open-eyed about soccer's many flaws and willing to take stands against its injustices. He was a loving critic and a critical lover. The other thing was his foresight. Grant saw before any of us, including those of us who were fans and reporters, that covering soccer could and should be a full-time job in America. Someone asked me recently uh, about Grant's, when did he pivot to soccer? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. When he and I shared an office in the 90s, he would happily have dropped everything to be the full-time soccer writer. He saw this coming. He had all of these pitches. I can't believe we don't have more people at the MLS final. I can't believe we haven't done anything. on there. There's this woman that plays for North Carolina whose name is Mia Hamm, and she has this coach, Anson Dorrance, who's a complicated figure, and he saw this wave coming. He saw this as underreported and underrepresented, and he would happily have uh, started on day one covering soccer full-time. Um, he, he really... Saw, saw around corners. And I, I think you're right. I think that's, I, I think you really set that up wonderfully. So, I mean, I, I think he saw this as part of a, a bigger story. And he, he was fine with the X's and O's. I mean, Lord knows he tried to explain it to uh, those of us who were, who were Philistines. But what he really got was the culture, how this explained the world, the politics for good, for ill, Men, women, globally. I mean, he really saw the, the games as sort of just a small part of a, a bigger tableau. John, I had assumed that Grant grew up with the game, that maybe he had played it in college or at least in high school, right? Um, <laughs> you know, a guy with this breadth of knowledge and enthusiasm for the game, you feel like that's something you almost have to be born with or develop as a kid. But he didn't truly become a convert until a, a college trip in South America. Can you tell us a little bit, bit more about that, about how he came to the game? Yeah, Grant had a mentor in, in college, Gloria Emerson, the uh, the well-known journalist and war correspondent who really encouraged him to, to write and explore the world and write the kind of stories that he would do for the next 30 years. And he, he described it to me as a boondoggle, but uh, he was an, an undergrad in college and went on a trip for credit to South America, to Argentina, and fell in love with soccer. He was from, you know, he, he was from eastern Kansas and, and knew a little bit about soccer, but I, I was laughing. I was, you know, Googling some of these tributes, and I saw, did, was Grant Wall a professional soccer player? And I uh, got a good laugh out, out of that one. He, he was not a professional soccer player. Uh, but no, he um, he took this trip to South America, and I think he realized the, the power of soccer, the binding power, the richness of this. He went to, you know, he snuck in and watched 
Boca Juniors and he brushed up on his Spanish and they gave him, you know, he was the, the American college kid and he walked out with a, a handful of scarves. And I, th I think that experience in South America really had a, a profound impact on him. He, he, was not a, uh, he was not a professional soccer player in, in an earlier life. And the other piece of that, John, was that he joined the college paper, the Daily Princetonian. He wound up covering the men's soccer team. And the coach turned out to be Bob Bradley, who would go on to be U.S. national team coach. And they developed what sounds like a genuine sort of collegial relationship, but also sort of a mentor relationship when Grant was at Princeton. And Bradley encouraged him to pursue reporting on and researching soccer, particularly in South America. Exactly. And some, some of that was, uh, you know, it was serendipity, it was good luck, but also I think it, it bears remembering just how small a speck soccer was on, on the sports landscape, certainly on the sports media landscape. It was Grant's, you know, he talked about this a lot. It was sort of his, his good fortune that, uh, the guy he was covering after they played Brown and Dartmouth would end up being the national team coach. But it also didn't take him long to sort of develop this this rich bed of contacts. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think the whole the, the Bradley family was was instrumental in him getting started. And by, you know, I, I think the very first main magazines back in the, uh, the this was the tail end of the golden age of magazines, like an ad would come in and they would need more edit pages. And he was hastily dispatched one day to go cover the women's NCAA final. Go ahead, this Mia Hamm woman. We don't know who you're talking about, but you seem really committed. That <laughs> you really seem to think she's a story. Go to Chapel Hill, write the story, and uh, you know, go on your way, kid. And that was really his first um, big break for Sports Illustrated. But within a few months later, he was going to. I think it was the first time he ever went to Europe. He was covering the World Cup in '98. He then covered the women's world. Again, very part of his story is just he was so prescient, not just with the growth of soccer, but where the story was, what the critical issues were, who the critical players would be, where the fissures were, where the growth areas were. And he gets back from France. He's absolutely giddy. I mean, I've never, I mean, he returns from this trip. It's his first trip to Europe. The home team wins. He's on the Champs d'Elysees when the players are, are feted. And the first thing he says is, we've got to cover the women next year. There, there's a lot of, of talent involved here, but I think one of his talents was he was really prescient with both the sport and with the individual stories. So there are so many stories that he wrote that I think were kind of like classically great journalism, the kind that you would teach in journalism school. Like most recently, the story that he did for his website where he went to Qatar months before the tournament and just went around to all the hotels and figured out how to speak to migrant workers, get them to trust him. He had these folks still talking to him on WhatsApp, which he talked to us about on our show, just about what they were dealing with in the country. Like he went there and got this story that so many people were um, speculating about is how are workers treated and this it's the big picture story of this World Cup and the corruption around it. He figured out a way to tell it on the ground in this very kind of close up way. And we all benefited from that work. I mean, so there's a kind of like orthodox great journalism there. But this was a guy who also ran for FIFA president. I think I had forgotten that um, until <laughs> I was thinking about Grant and looking back at his work. And, you know, John, there have been so many appreciations for his generosity, his mentorship. Um, but this is a guy who also kind of had an ego. Like, 
to run for the president of FIFA. And, and like, that's something that maybe we're not taught to do as journalists. Like he made himself the center of the story and he was willing to do that when he thought something was right. And we saw that with him wearing the rainbow shirt um, to the World Cup game in this past few weeks. Like he was not afraid to, um, whether it's, uh, you know, make himself the center of attention when he felt like that was necessary. Um, and so I wonder if you have any kind of insight into the kind of, of person um, he was in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to distinguish this wasn't, look at me, you know, I'm, I, I want your the dopamine rush of your attention. I mean, I think he was trying to make a point, both when he wore the shirt um, in Doha, but even when he, when he ran for FIFA president, it was sort of, we need some integrity after all of this corruption. It, it wasn't sort of a publicity stunt. But no, I mean, Grant was very complex. And he wrote long-form pieces, but also had this great social media presence. And, you know, he had, had his Midwest background, but also his Princeton background. And he broke news, but he wasn't at all transactional. You know, Deshaun Watson is improving because an anonymous source told me is completely offensive to him. And at the same time, he prided himself on being a newsbreaker as well. And as you say, he sort of had this, this Midwestern mensch side to him, but he also had this this low threshold for, for moral outrage. I mean, there, there were... He called out Sports Illustrated, John, when the new owners came in a couple of years ago, when Maven came in, and he was fired because of his outspokenness. Exactly. And um, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of people self, you know, we sort of held your nose and hoped for the best. And Grant said, no, 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 and went public with some of his uh, dissatisfaction. And whether it was, you know, e equal pay for the men's and women's national teams, whether it was FIFA corruption, whether it was workers' rights abuses, Grant had a lot of opinions. And he was very accessible. All, all these stories about mentorship, I've, I've seen this firsthand. I mean, he, he and I came up together. There was never anything remotely competitive about him. You know, it was, as, as Stefan said, he was happy to give you his contacts. He was happy to you know, bounce story ideas off of him. And yet when something enraged him, when he found something offensive, he was, he was not at all shy, both professionally and personally, about, about letting that be known. He was methodical. He was prolific. And he was personally very direct. And I admired him for that. And he was also kind of a goofball. I mean, he washed his jeans by putting them in the freezer. He wore those goofy red, white, and blue headbands on his bald head when he would work out. Shorts over running tights. He showed up for lunch with me and my wife and daughter in Lyon during the 2019 World Cup. Like he had just come out of the gym um, with the stupid headband on. Um, he was a character. Um, but that all, I think, all of that, I think, you know, went into his persona. And, and what made him such a great journalist was his authority and his willingness to just go from story to story and idea to idea, all of it as I said in the intro, endlessly fascinating to him and all of it needing to be told. There was a real versatility to him and he would toggle from, from podcasting to doing short videos to doing long form. I mean, Josh, you mentioned the story he did on the workers. I mean, keep, keep in mind too, this was not done with the big budget of, of legacy media saying explore this and an editor guiding him. I mean, 
he effectively did this on, on his own dime. A lot easier to just fire off tweets and get uh, the dopamine rush than to go report 5,000 word pieces on workers' rights abuses, especially when you're essentially doing this for your own site. But no, I, and I think this is what helped him connect with, with people as well, that he would, you know, he'd re- read The Economist, but he would also be able to quote Dumb and Dumber. And he owned, I mean, I, I, I don't think you guys would disagree, but I think this is the most, you know, this is the, the authority, this was the gold standard for covering the sport. This is the, the great soccer writer of our generation, but we've talked about that LeBron James cover. I mean, he, he and I met once in Oklahoma when he was doing, a, I think it was a Derek Carr store. I mean, he, there was a real versatility to him professionally and, and personally as well. I think that helped him connect with people. I think that helped people trust him. And I, again, it's it's really been, to me, a great source of comfort that the world is discussing this and telling these stories. You know, I, I just can't believe we're talking about this. Uh, you know, I, I heard him on your podcast, it seems like a few days ago. And some of this is about output and outcome and the work he did and the quality. But a lot of this is about process, too. And he just he, he was an Eagle Scout and sort of set it self-effacingly. But I think that's something that really informed his approach. And he didn't cut corners. There was a real integrity. There was a real thoroughness. I mean, he's as hard a worker. I don't think I've had a, ever had a colleague work harder. We all know about his great work, but the fact that his, his process, the acts as well as the words, that's something that's been really meaningful to me these past few days. You know, I got to know Grant through this show, right? I, the first time I'd ever spoke to him was when he came on here. And I think I was floored when I found out that he was only a few years older than me. Because given his byline in the assignments, I assumed he was about 20 years older than me. But he, he started at Sports Illustrated out of college. So that's like making the jump from high school to the NBA. And we're, and we're talking about SI during the heyday of Rick Riley, Gary Smith, William Knack, Michael Silver, you know, all those guys, right? You. Right. Uh, Jeff Perlman. Can you just sort of explain how difficult it was to get to Sports Illustrated in the 90s and then to thrive um, once you get that opportunity? Because that's I mean, we're talking about probably one of the golden eras of sports journalism, right? Yeah. Grant Grant had worked for the Miami Herald. He'd actually, I think, lived in Linda Robertson's, you know, attic. Um, And then he got this opportunity at Sports Illustrated to essentially come in as a fact checker and they would dangle the occasional you know, this is sort of the, the bullpen and you can work your way up. And um, Grant took that risk and left the Miami Herald to come to Sports Illustrated. Um, and I, I, you know, I think he and I started within a few weeks of each other. And you would take any and all writing assignments you could get. But I, I think it became very clear very fast that he had voice, he had talent, he had instincts. Um, he, he and I collaborated on a number of pieces when we were both sort of trying to break through and become full-time writers. And it wasn't just his work. I mean, his instincts as a journalist, um, knowing how to connect with sources, knowing the right questions to ask, um, sort of just being savvy and smart and, and ethical, but also efficient. He was just born to do this job. And it was, yeah, I mean, as you say, it was sort of uh, the, the, the golden age of Sports Illustrated and the money was flowing and you had this, this full staff of writers but also, Grant, Grant wasted very little time distinguishing. So, I mean, it was it was really clear he was going places, and he 
very soon became a, a full-time writer and didn't have to fact-check. And I think he recognized the opportunity, too. He knew he was good. I, I, at that 1998 World Cup, that's where I met him, in the press box during the Iran-USA game. And we got to talking, and I was like, dude, you should come and join. Come to the Wall Street Journal. We're starting a little sports department. And he was like, no, I think I'm good. You know, I'll think about it. But he made the right call. I think he knew that he could rise quickly and that he had the talent, and I'm sure it was being encouraged by people at SI. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, if, if, if you could do it again, you'd say go, go cover this, uh, this, this, this kickball sport uh, full-time. He covered college hoops for many years. You know, I had an opportunity to talk to Roy Williams recently. The first thing he said is, how's my buddy Grant Wall? I mean, he made real inroads in college hoops. And again, having grown up, he was a huge, like, like Josh in LSU, he sort of had the same thing with, with Kansas. And he grew up in college hoops. But from the beginning, soccer was really his, his first love. And I think he, he just got it. I think he understood that this was a growth stock. He understood the richness of the stories, the, the men, the women, the internationalism. I think, again, if, if you could re rewind the clock, you would have made him the full-time soccer correspondent in the late 90s and not 10 years later, but it, it worked out pretty well for him. Joel, you had this experience with your friend at Ashoff uh, a few years ago who died yeah. way too young, and just seeing the outpouring of both people who knew him and read his work just saying, the nicest things about him. And it would be great if folks could hear how we felt about them while they were still alive. And and I think a lot of us do take that opportunity to tell people we read and care about um, that, that they mean a lot to us. But just seeing um, how much people appreciated Grant, both for his work and for the person he was, has been a really beautiful thing. And, you know, John, he was in Qatar covering... The World Cup, and um, you know, we were subscribers to his newsletter, and a lot of his daily updates. He would bounce around between the games, between the broader kind of cultural and political story, but also like, you know, I'm so happy to be here with my friends, like the community of domestic and foreign journalists that were kind of his tribe. And so, you know, Chris Jones wrote wrote about being in the press box with Grant, um, you know, when he died. And and he was surrounded by, you know, people who loved him and cared about him and did the thing that he did. And he was just, for the last few years especially, I mean, you mentioned it, John, he was out doing exactly what he wanted to do, going to all the U.S. qualifiers, writing the story about FC Sheriff that he came on the show to talk about going to Spain, you know, being in Spain to write about Yunus Musa. Um, I can, you know, being at, at Leeds to write about the Americans there. Um, he was just like doing exactly what he wanted to be doing. Um, and so it's really admirable. And it was great to hear about his adventures, um, and, you know, as, as recently, just as, you know, this past week when he was writing about what a great uh, set piece goal the Netherlands had um, in that in that last game, um, and so yeah, I'm, I'm sure you had the same experience, John, and kind of following what your friend has has been up to the the last couple of years. Yeah, it's been a, a source of comfort that uh, the the word is out, and these stories um, sort of are endearing and, and poignant. Um, 
Chris Stone, our, our former colleague, wrote a lovely piece for the LA Times and likened Grant to to Anthony Bourdain. So, someone said, well, he treated everyone the same. And I, I would even push back on that and said there, were, there was almost a tropism towards that there was a real obligation he felt to, to be a mentor and to look out for people that did not have his level of, of status and access. And LeBron James had a lovely tweet, but what is just as poignant to me are all these people with whom we used to work who remember these small acts of kindness from 20 years ago. He was a big person. Uh, he was principled. He was ethical. But he really took great pleasure in sort of spreading the wealth. If that's his legacy sort of journalistically, but also as, as a human being. He was also a huge champion of his wife's work, uh, Celine Gounder, who's an epidemiologist and was on Biden's uh, COVID response team at the start of his administration. And even before I, I knew her, who she was, he was always talking about, you know, my wife, the doc, she's going to Africa, she's going here, she's going there. He was a great champion of her too. And I think that said a lot about, about Grant and, and how he viewed his own work and the context that he placed his own life. He also followed her and she would go to Seattle and he would go with her and they lived in Boston, they lived in Baltimore and when she was at NIH and, and in South Africa, which is where he finished the um, one of his books. And he he said, listen, as long as I have uh, good Wi-Fi, this is a global sport and I'm willing to wake up early. And they have these teleconferences where you don't have to go to the office. You can have a phone conversation right there on your laptop. There was a remarkable prescience to Grant and um, he, he really saw around corners in, in a lot of ways. And one of them was realizing you could base yourself anywhere and cover a global sport. And the, the fact that these tributes have come from, you know, he, he lived a few blocks away from me and they've come from the neighborhood. They've come from Princeton and Sports Illustrated, but they've also come from the farthest corners of the world. Um, that's testament to his impact. But I also think that's testament to how he saw the world and how small he thought, quite rightly, the, the world was and would be going forward. Uh, we are all obviously devastated by what happened, um, but we will remember Grant fondly. But we will share on our show page some of his work and focus on what a contribution he made, not just to sports, but to our lives as a friend and as a colleague. John Wertheim is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, John, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Grant. Thanks, and you guys should know how much he always enjoyed talking to you guys. Coming up next, we'll talk to Franklin Four of The Atlantic about Morocco and the World Cup. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% 
on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Men's World Cup semifinals are, as you probably know, all set. On Tuesday, Argentina and Lionel Messi, who's trying to win the tournament for the first time and cap his brilliant career, play Croatia, who are seeking a second straight finals appearance. On Wednesday, it's defending champion France against surprising, exhilarating, fun-making fan favorite Morocco. Morocco has been the story of the World Cup so far. The Atlas Lions already have dispatched Euro powers, Belgium, Spain, and in a wild one nothing win on Saturday, Cristiano Ronaldo's Portugal. In one of his final dispatches, Grant Wall called it. Morocco is no fluke, he wrote, and despite Portugal's big 6-1 win over Switzerland, I think Morocco has a real shot at taking down Portugal to become the first African team ever to reach the World Cup semifinals. Franklin Ford joins us now. He is a staff writer for The Atlantic and the author of the now classic book, How Soccer Explains the World. He's contributing to an Atlantic newsletter about the World Cup called The Great Game, where he wrote a remembrance of Grant Wall. Hey, Frank, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. All right, before we jump into the tournament, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about Grant a little. You worked together on a new Amazon Prime documentary, Good Rivals, about the U.S.-Mexico soccer rivalry, which I happened to be watching when I received the tragic news. I didn't know until I read your piece that Grant had helped you get going on How Soccer Explains the World, another one of his important contributions to the journalism of the sport. Uh, Probably one of his most minor Uh, But when I met Grant, I called him uh, fairly cold just as I was getting started on How Soccer Explains the World, which was really a notion more than a project at that point. And uh, I didn't know anybody in the world. And I knew, you know, I was I was I was a fan, but not not Grant Wall, who was at that stage a young reporter at Sports Illustrated. And even from that very young age, Grant just came into the game at the right moment for Grant and the right moment for the game. Grant started at Sports Illustrated just as MLS was kicking off and just as the game was suddenly available to us all through uh, cable television. We could watch the Premier League. We could watch the La Liga on a relatively regular basis. It wasn't just the Sunday morning PBS uh, versions of the Bundesliga. And Grant was just, I mean, it was... um, I was worried he was going to treat my call in a competitive sort of way because the world of soccer journalism at that point was so small and constricted. Having somebody come in and enter it, uh, I worried would trigger trigger him But I because I didn't know him. And in fact, he poured open his Rolodex to me, was incredibly encouraging. And I, I can't say that I um, ever had a close personal friendship with him, but... Um, I would stay in touch with him over the years. And he was always just this cheerleader for everything and everyone associated with the game. And that's part of what he did was he was he was the best champion for U.S. soccer because he treated the game with journalistic rigor as well as collegiality and generosity. And uh, his book on David Beckham, which I think is this seminal moment in the game where you have this Galactico 
coming to the United States to grace us with his presence, you would think that it would deserve some sort of hagiographic treatment. And Grant's book on the subject was anything but. I mean, it was this uh, perfect classic window into MLS and everything that was wrong with what he redeemed the David Beckham experiment. And I think the other thing, uh, one last thing I'll say about Grant and his contribution to the game was that he was a brilliant chronicler of the women's game. And he really took the game um, as treated it with the same respect, the same rigor that he treated the men's game, which was not the way that U.S. soccer treated it. It was not the way that his colleagues in soccer journalism treated it. And, um, I, you know, it, it's been very touching to watch the likes of Mia Hamm or Megan Rapinoe pay tribute to him in, in the aftermath because I think that they – they know his contribution to the mainstreaming of American women's soccer better than anyone. And that's that's quite a legacy. That was really well said, Frank. And what both you and Grant have understood and appreciated about soccer was there was a global game and how you kind of have a vantage to really see it all from America, to see it with a kind of critical distance. Um, and this tournament, um, which had... <laughs> teams from all of the non-Antarctica continents in the round of 16 is just such um, a great encapsulation of that. And in all of kind of world sport, um, the kind of one of the great achievements that has not yet been achieved, greater than perhaps the Cubs or Red Sox winning World Series, is an African team winning the World Cup. And we're just a couple of games away from that. Um, and so what have you seen from this Morocco team, both on the field, and what, what do you think the significance that is of what they've achieved um, so far in this tournament? Uh, I was just thinking back to Stefan and I watched the Euro finals, and it was a 2004 when Greece won, and we watched it at a, a Greek restaurant on Connecticut Avenue together. And uh, I think that that is kind of the obvious point of comparison for a lot of uh, soccer fans that when you have a team that plays with just so much cohesion and such a sense of national purpose, just punching above their weight. I don't think going into this tournament, if you'd asked most pundits, like which African team do you think has the best shot of pulling off this unlikely feat that you just described, Josh, I'm not sure Morocco would have been their number one pick. I think that Senegal was the team that people thought was kind of blessed with the, the most the most talent. Um, it's interesting because this is a this is an achievement that's not just an African achievement; it's an Arab achievement. And um, <clears throat> I think the fact that this tournament is taking place in Qatar, you know, a fact that um, many of us decried for I think very sound moral reasons. There's this flip side to it, which is that the tournament having the tournament being played in an Arab nation, I think, does um, flip the home field advantage that Europe and uh, South America tend to, to garner. Um, it's such an exciting team to watch because there's this, uh, you see this in every World Cup, that there's a team, whether it's I, I, Paraguay for me is like the quintessence of this, this model, where you have a team that just knows how to defend in a rigorous way that makes the type of defending that we would decry normally week in, week out is boring. They make it exciting. But on top of that, Morocco has layered on this kind of uh, what I think is I've seen it described as a swashbuckling 
uh, quality that when they counterattack, they don't just counterattack in ones and twos, they counterattack as a total team. And it's filled with like a stylishness and a joyousness and flicks and tricks. And uh, I think that the goal that they scored against Portugal is probably one of the goals of the tournament that towering header Alna series scored. And so that, that makes them so much more exciting than what, what you would expect out of this genre of team. It feels like there's obvious reasons why African teams have never advanced this far in the tournament, right? Like resources, the loss of players to other colonial nations, so on and so forth. But one thing Morocco has been able to do is that it's tied into, you know, players across the diaspora. And I, I'm just curious to know, is that a replicable model? Like, is, is, is Morocco's emergence as simple as the strong play, timely breaks, and successfully reaching out to these players that might have some interest in playing for their parents or their grandparents' nation? Uh, well, I think it is, in fact, the model that like Senegal, Ghana tend to use, that they do. They are successful in tapping into the Ghana, that most of these players who go to Europe at a very young age have multiple passports and they're wooed by multiple um, nations to play. Uh, I think what's interesting about Morocco is almost how impossible it would be to replicate what they've done because you look at their back line it's like it's it is the uh to use a sports cliche it's like the ultimate duct tape back line to have a team that relies on defense and they've now Hakimi I think is their only regular starter in their back defensive line Roman says they're kind of their monstrous um central defender who who had played at, at Wolverhampton Wolverhampton is now out and so they've just been shot through with injuries. And it's the fact that you have these guys who um, they have a right back who plays in, there's a left back who plays for Casablanca, who um, it, and it's just kind of astonishing that they're, they're doing this without even putting their kind of best talent forward. And they have players that play for Chelsea and PSG, let's be clear. And that's one of the, the reasons that, as you were talking about, Joel, that, a lot of the African teams can compete. And I think also one of the, the 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 missing pieces is that the rest of the world doesn't recognize, particularly when you just show up at this tournament, maybe you watch soccer casually and it's like, oh, Morocco, that's crazy, or Senegal, that's crazy. How are they doing well? Well, they're doing well because of migration and colonization and resources of European leagues and teams taking players away from home, but developing them at the same time. And the challenge, as you mentioned, Joel, is how do you get those players to play for their home country? They're often very torn. Um, and we see the same phenomenon with the United States national team too, Frank. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think what's exciting about this team is you have players like Hakim Ziyech, who, when he plays for Chelsea, is kind of assailed by Chelsea fans constantly for not pressing hard enough and that there, there's like a certain... Uh, profile that they've typecast on him and here playing for Morocco where uh, it's like it's all an expression of kind of national pride and attachment to this this nation which is enmeshed in all of the complexities that you've just described Joel and Stefan I mean that's the incredible thing you just see this this outsized effort that gets applied in this tournament where everybody these players who are who are fine players get cranked up to just this different level by part of the collectiveness of the, the whole enterprise. And Josh, you know, Ziyech didn't play for Morocco because he had a falling out with the previous coach who was a European. 
under a Moroccan coach, Ziyech has been reintroduced to the team just a few months before the World Cup and is thriving. Yeah, and that's been another pleasing phenomenon is African teams coached by African coaches at this World Cup, which um, is something that we really hadn't seen in previous generations, Frank. And also, I mean, it's it's just almost absurd the extent to which the kind of <laughs> national character and the like political history of the nation is just at the fore in all of these games. I mean, Morocco is playing against all of these colonizers. I mean, Spain, Portugal, and yeah. now it's kind of the ultimate matchup is France. I mean, you couldn't, it, it, it would be absurd to have, have thought it would play out this way. Um, but what, what are you looking for in that matchup between Morocco and France? Well, first of all, uh, words should be said for Morocco's Bosnian coach who was sacked right before the tournament, Fahid Halil Hodzic, who has been sacked three times. Uh, he's a mercenary coach who goes to different countries, Japan, Cote d'Ivoire, now, now Morocco helps them qualify for the World Cup. And then I guess is apparently such an ass that he gets fired right on the edge <laughs> of the tournament. He, he has fallings out. Um, but I love, um, I love these games where, I mean, for me, part of the joy of a World Cup is just knowing that it's, uh, intertwined in history. It's intertwined in culture. It's intertwined in politics. And that when you have, Games like when you had the game between Switzerland and Serbia, which you had all these Swiss players who were descendants of Albanian and Kosovo, Kosovar refugees playing against Serbia. This game, which has carries the edge of history, and despite all of the complexities that we've just described about the diaspora and um, and the relationship between um, the cosmopolitan center and the periphery of the empire, this is a game that has real. Meaning, you can't deny that this is that there's an element of of uh, of revenge that's there, and that will motivate the Moroccans. And who would bet against Morocco? I mean, after having watched them run through this tournament, France is an outstanding team. I mean, I think that they are technically the best team at the tournament, and. They are a team that has had a coach, Didier Deschamps, that has imposed a system that just works for them. Um, Antoine Griezmann, I think, has just been, uh, uh, I mean, we, everybody in the world knew he was a great player, but he's been just an absolute joy to watch at this tournament, playing this uh, supporting role behind the French strikers. And Mbappe played a terrible game against England. They beat they beat England, an excellent team, and Mbappe was like was really not getting into gear in that 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 game. And so, but um, you know, Fran Morocco plays such a specific style of football, um, and they've shown themselves capable of stymieing other attacks, which are also excellent. So, um, I really, I mean, I, you could you could put a gun to my head, and I would make a I would make a prediction, but I would struggle to make that prediction. All right, Frank is going to stick around for the bonus segment to talk about Gio Reyna and Greg Berhalter and the U.S. men's national team kerfuffle since their elimination. Um, until then, Frank Four, author of How Soccer Explains the World, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Frank. Thank you. Next, we'll talk about WNBA star Brittany Griner's release from a Russian prison. 
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. In August, WNBA star Brittany Griner was sentenced by a Russian court to nine years in prison for drug possession. By then, Griner had been in custody for nearly six months after police said they found vape canisters containing cannabis oil in her luggage at the Moscow airport. Griner's conviction happened during the invasion of Ukraine, a time of rapidly worsening relations between Russia and the West. The White House said then that they hadn't received a productive response from Russia about a potential prisoner swap. Fast forward to last month, when Griner was transferred to a notoriously brutal Russian penal colony about 200 miles southeast of Moscow. Hopes for an early return seemed grim. But last week, finally, the U.S. struck a deal with Russia to free Griner and send back Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer who once earned the nickname Merchant of Death. Josh... Griner's imprisonment became a sort of cause celeb because of the geopolitical ramifications, the efforts of the WNBA and its fans to keep her plight in the news, and the ongoing culture war over whether she was receiving preferential treatment over other American prisoners abroad. So what came to mind when you learned that Brittany Griner was being released? That she's a person that's kind of been lost a little bit in all of the geopolitical discussions and also kind of the back and forth about um, Paul Whelan being left behind and how this ended up being a one-for-one swap rather than um, getting all of the Americans who are wrongfully detained in in Russia out. Um, That this is someone who didn't deserve the treatment that she received and someone who on her flight back home, as the CNN story relates, just was clearly desperate for any kind of human contact and connection. Um, The special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, Roger Karstens, was talking about how on this flight she spent 12 of the 18 hours just talking to everyone on the plane, asking about who they were, um, expressing her gratitude that she was able to get home. And, And Stefan, I think because this story became so big, so infused with kind of political and cultural meaning. I think that this very tall woman um, kind of got lost in the the shuffle sometimes and became more of an idea than the person that she is. And just seeing her wife, Sherelle, um, and hearing about, um, you know, the, these first moments of freedom that she felt is just very kind of personal and very human and all the kind of political and cultural baggage just sort of melted away from me there. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that she was an athlete obviously is central to the entire conversation and why we're discussing her and have discussed her previously. Um, it was a 6'9 gay black woman. Um, and the, the most appalling thing to me in all of this um, is obviously A, Griner's treatment in Russia, and B, the way she's been treated as a talking point on the right and criticized for who she is. 
Um, let's not forget, she was, she was arrested by Russian authorities for allegedly having some cannabis oil in her suitcase, in a bag. She's not a political prisoner. She wasn't any sort of government official. She wasn't involved in any arms trade. This was an athlete who was trying to make money by playing overseas, which women's basketball players still need to do in this country. And you know, her career is going to be something that we'll talk about in a few minutes and will be the subject of conversation, I think, going forward. But you know, that, to me, it's also just the, the risks for uh, American athletes and star athletes who have to go overseas to earn a living. You know, I think that's the one thing that has stuck with me from the outset. The timing of this is really interesting because I'm always um, thinking about the idea that the WNBA itself, um, and particularly the Atlanta Dream, may have been instrumental in flipping the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Like, remember, they pushed out Kelly Leffler and elevated Raphael Warnock. And since then, Raphael Warnock has won four consecutive um elections to remain in the Senate. So Brittany Griner comes out of that league and there's, there are people that will already be sort of skeptical and, and that's at best about people out of that league. But if you look at her, she's easy to hate if you're inclined to go in that way. She's black. She's a lesbian, a native Houstonian, uh, easy to mock because of her height and appearance and someone who was once publicly critical of American government during the height of the George Floyd protest. So when she was released, I knew immediately that it was going to go in this way, which is sort of sad because it used to be a big deal, something that everyone could rally around when a political prisoner, an American political prisoner was released from a hostile foreign country. We used to celebrate that, but not anymore. And I know that, you know, nothing is really new under the sun. Um, America has always been the country. Like, I don't believe that, like, political division is new or any of that bullshit. Like, this, <laughs> I mean, ask my grandfather about, like, what the political division was in this country um, in the 1940s, right? But Brittany Griner is from a league and a group of people that are already sort of reviled on the right. And she didn't get the benefit of the support that she deserved. And that think that's really sad because it cast a pall over something that should have really been a national moment for us. That everybody should have really been able to, to to celebrate that. And instead, it's devolved into something else, which is fairly predictable, but it doesn't mean that we should talk past it or overlook it because it's still, I'm not going to say it's unprecedented, but it's nearly that. Um, and it's just really sort of depressing, uh, Josh, because like you said, Josh, I mean, she's a person. Um, she's a person that got caught up on trumped up charges and um, it just doesn't seem that the homecoming is what it could have or should have been. But at, at a minimum, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that she's home um, and that she can decide what she wants to do from here. Yeah, it's unclear when or if she'll resume her WNBA career and what a decision that is and what it would be sort of remarkable, wouldn't it, to see her on a basketball court? And just, I guess, the idea of her becoming the Brittany Griner that we would talk about on this show because she was doing basketball things. It seems kind of like far-fetched um, at this point. Like every everything that she does from now on in mm -hmm. her life, she'll be the woman who was, you know, held captive in, in Russia. Didn't you find it moving that when you read that she didn't even want a basketball, that she could have had yeah. a 
a basketball in prison and declined because she just figured that I'm probably not going to be needing that for a while, right? Totally. And the league, the WNBA, and the, and the NBA as well, but the WNBA sort of more, most forcefully was just so consistent in the message, both kind of publicly and I think privately towards her that she wasn't going to be forgotten. You know, that one of the, I think it's 144 players in the league was gone. So they were, you know, holding her spot. Like her her spot is available for her to reclaim if she wants to. But Stefan, I mean, we're kind of thinking here off the top of our heads, but I really can't think of an example off the top of my head. I mean, it would be like, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to just say something that's like a really, a really poor analogy, but um, just to have her kind of come back, play for the Mercury or whoever, maybe dunk and she'll be on Sports Center because she can dunk. Uh, it, it just seems kind of absurd to imagine that she'll ever just be regarded as like, <laughs> oh man, I can't believe she didn't box out in that, uh, no, co- know, cost them a game or whatever. Uh, you know, sports culture in America has a pretty short memory. I mean, I mean, one parallel might be athletes returning from war. Um, you know, athletes returning from injury feels trivial. It would be like if Colin, if, if like if Colin Kaepernick came back. I mean, there's obviously a lot of key differences sure. there. Or, or Pat Tillman, right? Like if Pat Tillman had come, like it's not prison, but you know what I mean. But I mean, there are definitely. I can envision where a scenario where she is celebrated as, a, as she should be when she comes back and gets back on, on a basketball court. She'll be a hero. Um, and the, she could play in the Olympics, which would be quite a a scene if that were to ever happen. Absolutely. Um, but the thing about about her potential return that I think is most gratifying is something that you guys brought up, which is the way that the N, the WNBA and the NBA had a consistent message and rallied around her um, and supported her. And we can say that you know tweeting is is not terribly significant in a situation like this, but it was a way to galvanize the players and it was a way to keep public focus on it. And it was handled, I think, in what seems to be an an extremely coordinated and safe way through the government, through the the State Department. Um, And whether that pressure mattered in terms of putting pressure on the Biden administration to to work out some sort of deal, even one that might not be palatable to every um, political analyst, um, or whether keeping her profile high internationally put some sort of pressure on the Russian government to know that they weren't dealing with someone who would be forgotten. I don't know, but ultimately it worked. I mean, it could have worked to the benefit of the Russian government that they were able to extract better terms because um, of, of the pressure and because she was high profile. But that's not a reason that people shouldn't have kept her name out there and and kept it alive. I mean, it's it's crazy to think that a basketball player got traded for an arms dealer. Um, but that is the the deal that was struck were not professional hostage negotiators. And, you know, she is an extremely high profile person. She's somebody that it was a propaganda victory for Russia that they 
detained her. Um, and it's a great thing that she's back and she's free. And her wife spoke very movingly at that press conference about how they are both going to use this experience to try to help other people in the same situation. So it's, I mean, it's certainly conceivable, Joel, that, you know, that the Brittany Griner could choose not to play basketball again. You know, Maya Moore stepped away from the WNBA for a political cause. Um, the, the profiles that a lot of the WNBA players have gained in the last few years um, have centered on political protest. Um, so I, I don't think we have any idea of, you know, A, what mental, physical condition Brittany Griner is in and what her interest level is right now. I mean, she's been home for, you know, less than 100 hours or whatever. Um, it, it, it doesn't feel like basketball is terribly important, but it is important in as much as it's her identity and it's her strength and her power. And additionally, I mean, it is a source of income because it's not just the WNBA. I mean, keep in mind, the reason she's going to Russia is to make up for the money that she otherwise can't make domestically, right? Um, and I'll be sort of interested to know what happens with female basketball players who want to play overseas and in Russia going forward. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, oh, well, you know, if the WNBA, you know, raises the salaries and maybe that will prevent that. And uh, I think, you know, Bamani Jones is the person who, who who mentioned this recently that, hey, man, if the WNBA offers $2 million, that's not really enough to stop taking money from overseas. Like, you still may want that other $2 million out there. Um, so, you know, beyond the geopolitical considerations, beyond the personal considerations, it also has, you know, reverberations for mm-hmm. people, all the other female basketball players that are going overseas and making their money uh, in this way. Like, what what can be done to make that not necessary anymore? And I don't know what that is. It may not, it may not be possible, but um, it's interesting to hear people talking about it, at least. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it's okay. Um, This week, the After Ball is going to be named after Paul Silas, the former NBA player, coach, who died over the weekend uh, at 79. Uh, Actually, his son, Stephen Silas, is currently the coach of the Houston Rockets. And look, a lot of people probably didn't come to Paul Silas 
until he was an older man, uh, head coach of a bunch of different teams, uh, including your team, uh, briefly. Josh, isn't that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Anyway, people may not know this, and this may be in the last time that Creighton was interesting to watch in basketball, but Paul Silas, Creighton basketball great, averaged 20 points and 21.6 rebounds. Uh, per game uh, at Creighton, voted into the College Basketball Hall of Fame, went on to become a five-time All-Defensive Team NBA selection, um, averaging about like a 10 and 10 in 16 seasons in, in the league, playing with the St. Louis and Atlanta Hawks, Phoenix, Boston, Denver, and Seattle. He won two titles with the Celtics. And when he turned 36 and retired, he was then the NBA's oldest player. Think about how how much mm. things have changed since then. So, look, I, I remember Paul Silas as a, a a big, intimidating man, a guy who I think challenged Ira Nubel to a fight once. Is that, does that, does that ring a bell? Have uh, you thought about the name Ira Nubel in a while? Yeah, right. Uh, Ira Nubel uh, didn't want any of uh, old man Paul Silas, who I, I figured probably still remained pretty tough and maybe could have even averaged double-digit rebounds if he still was in the NBA. So um, let's give it up for old Paul Silas. And Josh, what is your Paul Silas? So Paul Silas was LeBron James's first NBA coach. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and that's appropriate with this afterball. Grant Wall wrote dozens of cover stories in his 24 years at Sports Illustrated, many of them about soccer, but as we talked about with John Wertheim, he also wrote about college basketball and about one basketball player who skipped right over college. Among the many people who expressed their condolences about Grant's death was LeBron James, the subject of his 2002 Sports Illustrated cover story, The Chosen One, written when LeBron was still a high school junior. LeBron said this weekend, I'm very fond of Grant and having that cover shoot, me being a teenager and him covering that, it was a pretty cool thing. And he was always pretty cool to be around. He spent a lot of time in my hometown of Akron covering me over the course of time before that cover story came out. Reading that story now, um, I went back and, and looked at it over the weekend. It's clear that Grant did spend a lot of time in Akron, and that back then, when he was in his late 20s and LeBron was a teenager, Grant had an eye for the telling details that would help introduce the world to an American icon. Some of those details are just funny in their extraordinary 2002-ness, like LeBron checking his two-way pager for a message from Sebastian Telfair. What a 2002 <laughs> sentence that was. Um, but there's one passage that feels especially poignant today about LeBron's decision to play football on his high school team, ignoring the risk of injury. Uh, Grant wrote, At first, LeBron's mother, Gloria, refused to let him play last fall. But after the 22-year-old singer Aaliyah died in a plane crash last August, He persuaded her to let him play. You're not promised tomorrow, LeBron says. I had to be out on the field with my team. The big scene in the story that Grant captured is a Cavs game. And this was before, obviously, LeBron played on the Cavs. um, But they went to the game together. Cleveland was playing against Michael Jordan's Wizards, a team close to Joel's heart. Um, Mm -hmm. And Grant watched as MJ and Bron greeted each other after the game with a warm, we're old pals handshake. Um, He also saw an 11-year-old kid asking for LeBron's autograph, and then Browns coach Butch Davis joking with LeBron about helping out the team by playing wide receiver for the Browns, and you know, maybe just in the red zone. (laughs) Grant wrote that LeBron exists in a weird netherworld between high school student and multimillionaire, between dependent child and made man. There's a hint of concern in the story about shark circling. At that point, when LeBron was 17, Much of his life had been unsettled. 
Grant notes that the man that LeBron then called dad, Eddie Jackson, who was his mother's then partner, had pleaded guilty earlier in his life to cocaine trafficking. And Grant writes about how Jackson and Gloria James crisscrossed the country listening to sales pitches from corporate sponsors and Adidas and Nike representatives. But I was hardened but not surprised to see that there wasn't a hint of judgment in Grant's writing. The one moment that's going to stick with me is from that Cavs game they went together. Here's what Grant wrote. During a Cavaliers timeout, LeBron frantically waved his arms as the rally crew shot plastic mini basketballs into the crowd. He eventually snagged one, which he was still clutching when he met Jordan after the game. It's a great image, and I can just imagine Grant standing there and watching it all happen and being happy that he was there to see it. And if I had to guess, I bet he never forgot it. That was lovely, Josh. Yeah, it's really touching. Yeah, man. I mean, the amazing thing about looking at those stories from 20 years ago is how they hold up, and it sounds like Mm -hmm. this really holds up. A lot of credit to LeBron for that. And Grant, I think he has talked about it a lot over the years and recognized that he was lucky to be there in that moment. And, you know, Joel, you've written a lot of stories, uh, a lot of features over the years, and especially about athletes who can cover people with promise and that promise, you know, sometimes, a lot of the time, not their fault, it's just not fulfilled. But, you know, we're lucky sometimes to be there at a, at a particular moment and, and see something pretty magical. I'm thinking about in the same time that Grant Wall is doing that for Sports Illustrated, writing about LeBron, same year, I'm down in Texas doing a profile on Kendrick Perkins and calling him the next Shaq. Uh, so, you know, hey, sometimes, hey, they're, sometimes both on, people... they're both on NBA, you know, television <laughs> as commentators. Fair. That's what you meant, right? They both have a legacy. They both have uh, kept their spot in the game such as it is. So, yeah, that's a testament to not only Grant's prescience, but also a little bit of my uh, little too much hype. You know, I'm surprised the AP let me put that in there. But anyway. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Grant Wall, and thanks for listening. What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>